all these kids cry all the time. And you know, Randy has had some therapy. Are they really going to write every single letter out? Like, it's so excruciating. It was so poisoning. Yeah. Who the hell is Aunt Clara? She's out of touch, man. I mean, Ralphie's clearly a sociopath. Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's feeling the excitement of a kid on Christmas as I welcome the one and only Trish to discuss 1983's classic cringy comedy, A Christmas Story. But before we get into the fragile of it all, I'd like to tell you all about badass podcaster Trish the Dish. Trish was born in 1975 and traveled the world in her 20s. She was deeply enmeshed in the rave scene of the 90s. And from there, she committed herself to teaching French to underprivileged youth. She's now involved in making positive changes through higher education. She's the host of Gen X Voice, a podcast dedicated to bridging generations and proving we're not all slackers and Karens. Welcome to the podcast, Trish. Thanks for having me, Lori. I'm so excited to be here. I love your podcast. I listen to it all the time. It's one of my go-to road trip podcasts. And instantly I have to like listen to a Boys to Men album or Xanadu. (laughs) So I'm fangirling so hard right now. Oh my gosh. Trish, I mean, we've known each other a while. I love your podcast, Gen X Voice. In fact, Kate and I, my co-host from season one, were on your podcast last April. Yes. If you guys haven't heard that episode, go check it out. It is titled 1988 Lilith Fair and Ramones T-shirts. Check it out. It was super fun. Super fun. And um, I had such a blast talking to you both. And that episode is one of my top 10 most downloaded episodes, which isn't so bad after about, you know, what is that? Like 50 some odd episodes. So that's amazing. I'm so excited to hear it. It's a good listen. And so I have been wanting to have you on for a long time. And I asked you, Trish, I want to do something holiday. Christmas is upon us. What do you love from the holiday season? What bit of pop culture? And you said a Christmas story. And I was like, oh, so classic. What is your history with the film? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So this is the first film that I saw by myself. And as a Gen Xer, we are the last generation that were just dropped off at the mall, no matter how old we were. (laughs) I was the same age as Ralphie. You were nine. I was so little. No, I was younger than he was nine in that movie. Okay. That totally escaped me. I thought he was so much younger. So this was 1982, right? Or 83. It came out in 83. 83. So I was in second grade. And you were alone at the movie theater. Yeah. I met up with some friends whose parents also dropped them off, but it was the first movie I saw in the theater by myself. And also I loved Ralphie because messy Marvin was my favorite commercial kid. Like I think my crush on people with blonde hair and blue eyes (laughs) totally stems from Ralphie, like a hundred percent. So for those of you guys don't know, 
Peter Billingsley, who plays Ralphie in the film, he was a child actor. He was in a ton of commercials, including one for Hershey syrup, where he was coined as, did they actually call him Messy Marvin in the commercial? I have no idea. I just remember that was his name and he was making his Hershey's <laughs> chocolate milk, which I don't know about you, but freaking lived off of as a kid and quick, obviously, yes. quick, but everyone had Hershey's chocolate syrup in the fridge. I don't know a single human that does now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I actually have it in my fridge because my oh, kids they, love it. But yay, yeah, Lori, keeping the traditions alive. The traditions nice alive. job. I can't believe you were seven dropped off at a movie theater. That is the most Gen X thing ever. Ever. <laughs> so crazy, right? Like no thoughts, no worries. So that's why it's to this day one of my, uh, well, it's probably my favorite, but I have a close second with It's a Wonderful Life just because. Classic. Iconic. Classic. Yeah. Yes. But this is, this is my film. So this film, I mean, it was just so different from holiday films at the time. It was in the category that we call today cringy comedy. How did you feel about that as a kid? Like, how did that translate to you when you saw it? You just instantly loved it. Did you feel the cringe factor of it? What were your impressions? It's, it's a little hard to um, pinpoint exactly how I felt like 30 years ago or whatever it was. (laughs) Right. No, tell me exactly how you felt, Trish. But if I just sit and breathe for a second, Marie, I can get there. No, but, um, so I come from a pretty tumultuous childhood. So I pretty much instantly understood what was happening. Like just, you know, the, the screaming in the house and there was a lot of chaos, a lot of chaos you know, not your typical, you know, rich kid family life. Um, and also I saw the movie, of course, a billion times after and since, and I went to, um, I went to school in the Midwest from ages 10 to 12 and boy, just watching it again, after having that kind of bit of my childhood, it resonated even more because there's so many iconic things that I'm sure we're going to get through, get to that. I hundred percent lived through myself. Oh, great. I remember as a kid seeing this film and laughing at it. I mean, there were just undeniable funny moments, you know, the, the leg lamp and the pink bunny suit and just the, the tongue on the flagpole. But there were elements of the film that felt really uncomfortable to me. And I don't think I saw it in 83. I probably saw it a few years after that. Yeah. And now, all these years later, like I see it for what it is. I'm a fan of irreverent comedy. I seek it out. So for that reason, I really do adore it now much more than I did probably when I was a kid. But I mean, let's be honest, Lori, what movie in the 80s wasn't cringy? The raunch factor in a lot of the older films cannot be denied. Cannot believe we watched that stuff. But so this movie really, there's so many things about it. They did goodbye. Like, and and I'm sure we'll get through all of those things where I'm like holding my breath, like, okay, they didn't go there, but then there's things that they do. And, and so it's still one of those movies where if you're going to watch it, there's things that aren't okay. Yeah. Let's dive in. There's just so much to talk about. It's too good. Let's do it, Lori. 
the screenplay for this film. This was actually based on Gene Shepard's Little Bit True, Little Bit Imagined short stories from his 1966 book called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. So he was this guy who used to write these short stories. He would share them on radio. You could tune in and you could hear his short stories, which is amazing. How cool. Three of the anecdotal short stories that the film is based on were actually published in Playboy magazine between 1964 and 1966. Hmm. Yeah. The kind of stories that I would expect in Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) You got to read the stories in Playboy, Trish. Oh, silly me. Yes. We read it for the articles. Come on now. Okay. So the film was directed by Bob Clark and Bob Clark was able to get this film made because he had two really, really successful films, Porky's and Porky's 2. I think maybe Porky's 2 came after this, but like high off of his fame and success of Porky's, he was able to get this thing done. So, Which by the way, Lori, that movie Porky's, I saw way too young and totally ruined my brain. It scarred you? Yeah, there's some things that I can't unsee in my little kid brain, and there's no way. Well, you know what? I've never seen it. I'm very familiar with the poster of it. I know exactly oh, what the poster Lori. looked like. It's worse than anything you can imagine. Really? So I cannot believe that this is the same guy because I know his name sounded familiar, but I was like, but I'm going to let Lori do all the research. So I'm, I'm excited to see crazy. all the things that you know. Crazy. So he actually wrote, directed, and produced both Porky's films. So it's not <laughs> like he just directed it. Like, this is his brainchild. So the film, A Christmas Story, was released on November 18th, 1983. And it had modest success. It earned $2 million in the opening weekend. Now, the budget for the film was $3.3 million and gross worldwide box office as of today, $20.6 million. Vanity Fair had an interesting write-up on this film. It said, so when A Christmas Story premiered in 1983, we suddenly had a new kind of holiday movie, one that acknowledged, even relished, in unbridled avarice, the commercialism, the disappointments, the hurt feelings, the all-around bad luck that, in reality, often defined the merry season. In other words, what real Christmas was like in real families. And I thought that was just really brilliant because I was like, yes, it's the high highs, it's the low lows, and it's the reality in a family at Christmas time. And now we see a lot of films that tackle that. But at the time, it was revolutionary. So let's get into the plot of it. Yeah. We have a lot to unpack here. I've got a lot of notes. Oh, yes. I love it. She has lit notes. She came prepared. True podcaster. Heck yeah. Okay. Plus, like I said, I love your show. So I just love, I love this part. This is one of my faves. I love that you came to it, like ready to talk. (laughs) So we open on the holiday season in downtown Homan, Indiana, where we meet Ralphie Parker, a little nine-year-old boy living with his mom, dad, and younger brother. Let's talk a little bit about the Ralphie casting. We touched on Peter Billingsley and his famous Hershey commercial. So interestingly, though, he was the very first kid to audition. What? So he nailed it. The director, Clark, loved him. But Clark was like, we can't go with the first kid we saw. Like, he was great. But like, no, we need to see what else is out there. And they literally auditioned thousands of child actors. 
only to then choose Peter Billingsley, the first one who auditioned. Wow. Yeah. And they, they wasted a lot of time only to come (laughs) back to, to the first kid. Peter Billingsley was one of five kids in his family and they were all in the entertainment industry, which is interesting. They were like the Culkins before the Culkins. <laughs> so in the film, we hear narration of an adult Ralphie telling the tale of a Christmas story that he'll never forget. Now, Shepard, Gene Shepard, the writer of these stories that all of this is based on is actually the narrator. Oh, no way. It's pretty cool. Wow. I love that. But interestingly, like Clark and Shepard, the director and obviously the writer, they didn't get along because Shepard was super protective of his material. And, you know, Clark was a director. He had a vision for the film. He was Porky's director. (laughs) I directed Porky's. Don't you know who I am? (laughs) So they didn't get along and there were a lot of problems. And like Shepard would pull little Peter Billingsley and other actors aside and be like, no, 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 you need to play it like this. No, no, no. You need to do it like this. And Clark was like, um, I'm the director. This is not okay. So there was a lot of butting heads. Mm -hmm. You always wonder that with writers and directors, like how much is authentic that's coming from the actual work. And I feel like I would be the same though as a writer. No, it is really hard. I've worked for a long time as a writer and you write something and even an editor, and I've been on that side too, as an editor, getting their hands on it and making their changes. And I have had things published where I'm like, "Mm, not happy with that edit. Like I'm not happy with what was done to it. One article I got written, uh, got published in Bust Magazine in like the early 2000s was so far from my tone. And I made, I think I got like 50 or a hundred bucks for this little article. And mm-hmm. I was like, yes, I'm going to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And like, what an awesome magazine to write for. I never submitted another article again. Cause yeah. I was so traumatized by that process. It's hard. It's like, once it leaves your hands, you know, especially once it's optioned into a film, yeah, you don't have to say anymore. Yeah. Clark, he wrote Porky so he could direct <laughs> Porky's however he wanted, you know, but it wasn't much of a collaborator. It no. sounds like either, so that's kind of, that's shitty too. Like this is my film go away. It's yeah. Super hard. So, okay. The family is downtown. All the townspeople are gathered around the Christmas window display at Higby's department store. And it's filled with all your motorized trains and dolls and robots. So this was like the advanced shit that all the kids wanted for Christmas. Super tech. Look. <laughs> because this movie takes place in like the 40s. Okay. So it's a little bit debatable based on certain things that they've shown. I mean, the general consensus is it's sometime in the 30s and 40s. But the people who really get hung up on these things are like, well, it can't be in the 40s because of blah, blah, blah. Well, it can't be in the 30s. Well, hey, know. Lori, don't you do that with movies? Now, oh, yeah, I do. And let's just talk about mom's hair because that's obviously not 1930s or 40s hair. That's obviously 1982, 83 hair. That is a really good point. It's one thing, Lori, that I I have such a hard time getting past. Didn't care about as a kid, but as an adult, I cannot stand that. That is the typical mom hair of the 80s. 
You know, that's really true. And I think that they had her with these wild curls, sort of frizzed out hair to show that she's kind of just a frazzled woman. Like, I think it was supposed to speak to the fact that she spends all of her time and energy caring for everyone else. And she doesn't put that same energy into herself. I feel like she would have had a bunch of clips in her hair that and made it up, you know, not dissimilar to the lazy bun that I'm doing (laughs) now. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't all be down the cool term face. I'm sorry. I can't, I just can't with her hair. (laughs) I didn't even notice it. And you're absolutely right. You'll never unsee it now. I won't. Now I'm just like, I have a problem with her hair. So we see Ralphie and his brother staring at the toys inside the window and Ralphie spots the one thing that he really wants for Christmas. Trish, you know it. The official Red Rider carbine action 200 shot range model air rifle complete with compass and a sundial. It's what he wants. <laughs> and it's how it's explained throughout the whole movie. Now, Trish, let's talk about Christmas for a second. Yes. How do you feel about Christmas? Are you a Christmas person? Huh. There's so many feelings I have about Christmas because like I said, I had a pretty traumatic childhood. So there were Christmases where we were living in a car or I got a pair of socks and there were Christmases where there were so many presents under the tree for weeks and weeks that like, you know, I really was like the kids, like crawling around the tree and shaking the presents, but it was always laden with really terrible family things happening. So my mom being on drugs, being kicked out of family Christmases, or just like not having a mom and dad around and, you know, trying to have a Christmas with like my grandpa and his sister to like um, being an adult and, and just like not having family at all because my grandpa disowned me. That's all of this is a a lot that's unpacked in my podcast, but I mean, Christmas was always terrible. My mom would be so irate and say things after she'd like, you know, and this, this is going to get really real for a second. Um, she, she beat the living shit out of me for like hours. And then she'd be like, God damn it. It's Christmas. And then, you know, we had to like, I had to present myself as like, no, no, nothing's wrong here. And I hated my family, my extended family, because if we stayed with them and they knew she was doing that, no one ever stepped in to help. And so as an adult, I was like, okay, fuck Christmas. We're going to celebrate Trishmas because my birthday is December 16th. So I decided to like reown that sort of holiday season. I love that. Yeah. And really was just like, you know, I'm and sorry to Christians, but for me, it was never about Jesus because it was always so like traumatizing right. even when we had good Christmases. And so it was like, I'm going to do Trishmas. I had these big parties when I was older. I had like DJs playing and like, you know, we just do crazy things. And so the holiday season is really interesting because of my lack of sort of wanting to be with families. And you always get invited when you tell your sad story. Like I just, like I said, we're going to get really deep, but I'm doing it in such a light way because I'm so distant from that. But, you know, I have an aunt and uncle that I love more than anything. And in the last, I'd say seven years, 10 years, we've made a point to get together during the holidays you know, they decorate their house all really pretty. They have like a little village, you know, and, 
And so I decorate a little teeny bit, but as a single person that lives alone, like I don't usually, so for the one time, and I sent you a picture that I bought a real tree because I dated this guy who was like, oh my God, let's redefine Christmas for you after he heard that story. It's so complicated, the holiday season, right? Like even without all of the things that you just shared, I can't imagine as a kid trying to reconcile the most merry season where everyone's supposed to be so kind to each other and goodwill toward men, peace on earth and all these things. And there's just utter chaos at home. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. did you dare, because you had times where you lived in extreme poverty, and then you had times when you had you know more than you could ask for and more, which is confusing in its own right, right? <laughs> did you dare to want things for Christmas to make those things known? Or did you feel guilty about that? Because the messaging around Christmas, right? And all the hot toys, and there's just so much consumerism and often so much waste. Mm. How did that feel as a kid? Here, Ralphie wanted this one thing like so bad. Was there a thing that you ever really wanted at Christmas? And did you get it? Yeah. So there's so much there. So there were a lot of times where obviously you're a kid and you write out your Christmas list, things like that. And there were times when I being a fourth grader and getting a pair of Coca-Cola socks and that's all you got. And you're at the school and obviously, you know, you talked about in Clueless, your Clueless episode, Mm -hmm. how there's all those hierarchies. Absolutely. Kids. I mean, that shit was real in fourth grade in the Mm eighties. So, so I had those times of like, really, could I possibly get the thing to my mom was drunk on a toilet in a bar for my birthday and Christmas oh, and Jesus here's, Trish. you know, just like, yeah. And left home alone. But one Christmas, the best Christmas gift I ever got was in 1984 when 99.9% of Americans had Cabbage Patch Kids for Christmas. I got a Kusa, which was pretty much like a bootleg Cabbage Patch. Okay. <laughs> well, not a bootleg. I mean, it was their pet, but um, was the Barbie Ultra Vet. Do you remember this? I do. And in fact, it's funny that you brought up Barbie because the (laughs) one thing I always wanted that I never got was the Barbie dream house. (gasps) I wanted it. I didn't get it. The dream house. Yeah. Barbie and cabbage patch. Yeah. What about you? Like, do you have like a Ralphie present or was it the dream house? I also really wanted a basketball hoop. And (laughs) my mom always tells a story. She's like, you used to go around all the time and say, I want a basketball hoop and a baby brother. She's like, these were the two things like always want. She's like, I wasn't going to put a freaking basketball hoop on the house because I don't like the way they look. So there was that. And then my mom's like, I wasn't going to give you a baby brother. I ended up with a younger stepbrother. So I kind of got what I wanted. But yeah, I mean, I have to say, like I tell the story on my Cabbage Patch episode that I did in season one, how I was very late to the Cabbage Patch game. Right. I wanted right. one for a long time. I did not get one in Christmas. What was that? 83. So that was the same time this film came out. Yeah. So I, I get it, Ralphie. He schemes up this whole way of getting this toy. He is creative and he is resourceful. And I have mad respect for Ralphie here. He knows that asking for a BB gun probably won't go his way. And I mean, he goes so far as to put like ads 
for this BB gun in his mother's magazines and his father's newspaper. He's like, I'm going to get this to seep into your subconsciousness. This is just a little side note, though. When he goes into his parents' bedroom and there's the two twin beds, they don't even share a bed. I died. Seriously. And I don't know if that is a kind of a wink and a nod to how like in, in those days you couldn't really show people living in the same bed. I think that's what it was. I was like, oh, that's super like Lucy and Desi of them. I'll be honest though. As a kid, I really was confused there. I thought that was his bedroom with his brother. Like I really, I really did not understand. I feel like until I watched it the other day and was like, oh shit, that's his parents' bedroom. That's his parents' bedroom. And I was sort of like, man, that's kind of the way to go. (laughs) My husband snores a lot. So that's rough for me. Like I, I could almost do with a separate bedroom just to get some good quality sleep, but like he runs hot. I run cold. What people need for their sleep environment doesn't always click. Like I need it super quiet. I need it super dark. It doesn't matter to him. And so when I saw the two separate beds, like I laughed, I thought it was a wink and a nod. I was like, you know, I could have 50 blankets on my bed and he could have none. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. I wonder if that's why I'm single, Lori, because like I have lived with guys, I've shared beds and I hate it. Like I hate it so much. Like I said, I have to have Frazier on to go to sleep. What if your partner doesn't want to go to sleep listening? Most of them don't. To Frazier. And you're like, I need Frazier. (laughs) (laughs) So Ralphie's dad. Oof. Okay. Let's talk about him. He's a hardworking man. He's in a perpetually grumpy mood. He regularly spews his tapestry of obscenities. Which are incomprehensible. I, <laughs> I mean, whether it's the, the furnace or the family car or the 750 hound dogs that are constantly harassing him. He's that typical grumpy dad. And Ralphie's dad, Mr. Parker, is played by stage and film actor Darren McGavin. And I don't know if you know this, Trish, Jack Nicholson was actually offered the role. Wow. Couldn't see that. Apparently he was really expensive and I don't know if he turned it down or what happened with that, but the director ended up loving McGavin for the role. I thought he nailed it. Same. Ralphie's mother, she tends to the home and she works just serving and, and helping boiling cabbage. I mean, all the time for her family, right? She yells a lot. She's a yelly mom. The mom is played by Melinda Dillon and she is a Tony award and Academy award nominated actress best known for close encounters of the third kind. Okay. I knew, I knew her too, but I was like, you know, there's so many people in the eighties that like, you know them, but you don't know know them, you know, so the film, it felt really relatable in how Ralphie interacts with the world. Mm -hmm. One of the things that the director Clark did, which was so interesting was he decided to cut the floors on the set so that the camera would be at Peter's height, which was four foot two inches. Wow. And so what we saw was everything from Ralphie's point of view. That's so cool. Wow. That's maybe that's why the movie's so magical is that his imagination is wild in this movie, right? And I don't remember quite having that kind of imagination while like standing at the teacher's desk. Like, I don't think anyone ever caught me 
daydreaming. But then again, I'm, that's probably a lie. Cause I'm sure all kids are just like spaced out, you know, because there's so much going on in their minds. And my favorite thing is like, when I grow up, they'll see something's going to happen and they're all going to be sorry. You know, like, I feel like that's such a kid thing. I don't know. It did is. you feel that too? I did. My younger son used to always say <laughs> to the point where I was like, well, should I get him checked out at the doctor for this? He would tell me I have visions. That was the word that he would use. I'm having visions. And I was talking to my mom. I'm like, what the fuck? Mommy's having visions. And my mom's like, Lori, I honestly think he's daydreaming. I think he's daydreaming. And like he sees in his mind's eye the daydream. He's just in his head and the way that he's processing and making sense of the world. Wow. I never thought of using that term for that, but that is kind of what it is. You are having a vision of an alternate reality that you might. (laughs) I mean, I hope that's what it was, Trish. I don't know. (laughs) I tell you what, I could never have kids because I would think they were possessed all the time. (laughs) So funny, right? So Ralphie works up the courage to mention what he wants for Christmas. He's like, I want a BB gun. And his mom reacts exactly how he feared in what he called a classic mother BB gun block. She said, no, you'll shoot your eye out. Yep. He really wants this. He's devastated by this. And he, so he daydreams of the day that he is able to defend his family from marauders that threaten their safety, Trish. I mean, these crooks descend upon the house. Like they're crawling on the roof. They're wearing the black and white, like striped shirts with the eye mask. Yeah. The the told bandits with their like satchels, you know, meanwhile, Ralphie is in a full cowboy outfit with all the silver silver fringe for days. Here's a moment where they could have made this very not politically correct. He's dressed up as a cowboy but he's fighting robbers. Right. So I felt like that was really culturally sensitive because we all know that kids in the forties and fifties were not probably listening to cowboys and robbers. No, they absolutely were not. And I think that you're right. I think that's a really good point because we will then talk about the end scene in the Chinese restaurant. Not culturally appropriate or sensitive. Exactly. Yeah. So Ralphie relies on his gun that he calls old blue to shoot the bad guys in the butt while he's chewing his tobacco. He's saving his family. They're under the kitchen table screaming. Ralphie saves the day. They can't thank him enough. But Trish, in the most Gen X move ever, Peter Billingsley was actually given real tobacco to chew for that. Shut scene. up. I Are swear you, to God. Was it big league chew? Apparently what they used to do in situations like this is they would give kids black licorice. Okay. That is like, was like the industry norm for tobacco use, at least in minors for films, because <laughs> I guess there was such a calling for it. I don't know. They gave him actual tobacco, which made him, he said, he has said in interviews, he got really dizzy. He started sweating and his lips started burning. Uh, yeah. Uh, How much tobacco do you have to have in your mouth to have your cheek? bulge. I've never chewed tobacco. I don't even know what that's like. It just seems like it would be horrible. It's disgusting. And you get so dizzy because it's just like, it's just like seeping into your skin and like into your cells. You know what I mean? 
That's so, yeah, you're right. So Gen X, like who cares about the kids? <laughs> I don't know who's responsible for overseeing the safety of children on set. I don't know. The same ones who were overseeing the safety of the pets and the animals. Right, right. Oh my God. Yeah. So in the next scene, we see Ralphie's headed off to school. His little brother is, you know, tailing behind. And this is when Ralphie meets up with his buddies, Flick and Schwartz. And they get into this conversation about how, you know, it's so cold that if you stick your tongue on a flagpole, it'll get stuck. And they're debating whether or not this is true. Flick doesn't believe it. Schwartz double dog dares him to try. And so he does it. He triple dog. Oh, I'm sorry. You are correct. He, he totally bypassed. No, he does the double dog. Then they wait and they're all watching. And then he goes, I triple Triple dog dog there. And you hear the narrator being like the mother of all, (laughs) you know, like dares, like you have to do it now. His, his ego, his reputation is on the line. He has to do it. He has his pride to consider. Yes. So. Flick decides, okay, I'm going to take your bet. He sticks his tongue on the flagpole. They're outside of the school. The bell rings. Oh my God. His tongue is stuck. He's freaking out. He's screaming for help. And everyone just ushers into school because they don't want to be late. Ralphie goes, the bell ring. (laughs) That's so terrible. It was so traumatic. The teacher, what's her name? Miss Shields. She's like, where is he? And they're like, um, he's, he's outside. And she sees him. She's like, oh my God. She runs outside to go help him. They call the fire department. The police show up. It's this whole thing. And later he shows up back to class after this super traumatized, ex- traumatizing experience, his tongue is bandaged. <laughs> he didn't go home for the rest of the day. Did they even call his parents? Probably not. I don't know. Was this a, the next day? No, it was, it was the, the same day. day. Oh my gosh. I guess it was because we see them go home later that night. I but... swear to God, like Ralphie, honestly, I'm like, you're such an asshole. You didn't even go seek help. Right. But Lori, have you ever been double dog dared? I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like the dare situations in my life were probably during like slumber parties and truth or dares. First of all, I am not competitive. I don't have competitive spirit. Secondly, I honestly just don't give a shit most of the time. So if someone wants me to do something and I don't want to do it, I'm like, no, (laughs) I had a lot of friends that were involved in some kind of shady stuff when I was younger. And I was like, no, it's just not for me. Yeah. I feel like I I'm very similar to you, Lori. I can totally relate to that where I was kind of a goody goody in a lot of ways, but somehow we did mischievous things, but it was always like a group consensus. It wasn't like you go and do the thing and we'll all watch. You know what I mean? Now, when I was in college that, you know, I'd be double dog dared to like go flirt with a boy or something at another table. And you better believe I didn't even need a double dog dare for that. But Like these kids were shitheads. Totally. It's so funny. And this whole thing, like, can that really happen? Can your tongue get stuck to a flagpole? Mythbusters tested this out. And yes, yes, it can. Your saliva will turn into like what they call a kind of super glue in really cold temps. So you guys don't try this at home. It could actually happen. I feel like it's happened just with like popsicles before where I've been like, I can see that this could happen. Yeah. 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 So Scott Schwartz, the kid that played Flick, the one that stuck his tongue to the flagpole, 
he grew up and he worked in the adult film industry for a time. Just FYI. We'll have to go rent those movies (laughs) or not. (laughs) (laughs) So this is when Miss Shields announced the next assignment. And this is you guys need to write an essay detailing what you want for Christmas. And Ralphie's like, this is the best thing that ever happened to me in my life because I'm going to write the most compelling essay for my cause. Miss Shields is going to be like, he needs that BB gun. My parents are going to get wind of this. They're going to be convinced this is perfect. So he's super stoked about this. So as Ralphie and his pals walk home, they encounter the neighborhood bullies. This is Scott Farkas, who wears that (laughs) raccoon skin cap, the one with the yellow eyes. And his little lackey Grover, the kid with the green teeth, the kid that dresses like Angus Young from ACDC, that kid. <laughs> the bullies just torment the kids. Schwartz ends up getting his from these kids. And I wasn't actually sad about that because he was the one that Triple Dog dared. Mm-hmm. So like you got yours, Karma's a bitch. I didn't feel bad yeah. for him, honestly. Yeah. I never thought of that before, but you're totally right. Like yeah. that, that was perfect. Lori, did you ever have bullies follow you home from school? Okay. So I did not walk home from school because my school was not close to my home. However, I did have a bully in school and um, it was hard. She was so much bigger than me. I, I think she was probably, she probably had five inches on me. She was so mean. And this went on for, I don't know, like maybe two or three years. And I mean, she never like beat the shit out of me. There was nothing like that, but she was just very intimidating and very aggressive. And I felt scared a lot of the time at school and I didn't speak up because I don't know. Well, you didn't speak up back then. Yeah, I guess you didn't. I live, I was lucky in that I moved around a lot. So I, I didn't, if I had a bully, I didn't have to be around them for long, but there was. Um, when I lived in Illinois, there were these kids that would chase my friends and I home from school every day. And it was, it was really bad. And finally one day I turned around. I mean, we were fast though. Come on. They never caught us. Um, but I turned around one day and was like, what will it take to, to get you to stop chasing us? And they were like, you have to beat up your best friend. And I did. You did. You felt like you had to. Okay. Okay. Let's unpack this for a second. When you decided to stop running and turn around, were you scared shitless when you asked that question? What's I think it I was take? out of body. It was just Lori at this time, it had been like a year or two, like it was so much. So this is one of the poor times in my life. And um, so we lived on the wrong side of the tracks Okay. and my friends were poor too. It was a brother and a sister, Jenny and Jason can't get much more Gen X than that. Am I right? Totally. And you know, it was just, it was so bad. Like we were so scared of this girl and her friends. They were just relentless and I didn't even care. Oh, it it was, it was almost three years because this was like sixth grade when I finally did this to my friend and totally got in trouble. But I told my best friend, Crystal was her name. I said, I need you to know what's going to happen. And I need you to know that I love you and I'm sorry, but we've got to stop this. And she kind of understood. I know that sounds really weird, but she she knew about this girl and her gang of friends and, and she kind of got it. It wasn't like the Ralphie fight that we'll talk about later, Um, but it was bad enough to where I got in trouble in school. Like, you know, got 
sent to the principal's office. They were shocked because I was like such a smart, good kid. Right. It's so out of character. Yeah. They were really worried about me. And I told them it was because I, I felt like I had to do that. And they were just floored. I mean, they, you know, back then they, they didn't know how to deal with bullying and things like there were, there were no, no bullying campaigns and things like no, that. No, there was no like call for emotional safety on school campuses. Oh, God, no. Nothing like that. So did the bullying actually stop? Yeah. She became one of my really good friends and taught me a lot about music and dancing and all kinds of things from a different culture altogether. So once you guys kind of became friends after this happened, did you ever begin to understand why she wanted you to do that? Did she want you to do that because she always wanted to be your friend? This is sixth grade or whatever, fifth grade. And I think she's from more poverty than I was. If And I couldn't believe that that was possible. I don't think that she did it because she wanted to be friends. I think it was because there was so much anger inside of her. I don't know what it was. Um, but I tell you what, like after that day, like I had a different feeling about the world after all of that. And wow, maybe that's why I have so much more of an affinity toward at-risk youth and things like that. Like I've never thought about that before, but I'm thinking about it now, looking back, thinking like that was actually a really pivotal time in my life. Oh, so interesting. What a, what a wild story. Yeah. Bullies. Am I right? Wow. But I'm so sorry that you never spoke up. Cause I'm going to tell you when that ended, that was so massive. I know that, you know, the bullying aspect of this film is only one small part of it, but I mean, it's just, it's such a part of the child experience. Those experiences really do shape you. Mm-hmm. Ralphie makes it home. Okay. He didn't get his that day. <laughs> he decides to work on his essay and he pours his heart and soul into it. And he is so pleased with himself. And that night, this is when his dad comes home from work overjoyed about the major prize he won. Trish, he wonders what it is. Maybe it's a bowling alley. I died. <laughs> his wife is like, what? Like, so, so often the dynamic between these two, he's so ridiculous and over the top. You don't see love between them. Right. You can't, you can't even understand how these two, how did they get together? What did they once have? Right. This is the scene at dinner. When we find out Randy hasn't voluntarily eaten in three years, he's playing (laughs) with his food, meatloaf, meatloaf, double beetloaf. I hate meatloaf, you know, and then his mom gets him to eat his dinner by pretending he's a little piggy and it's disgusting. And I remember being really uncomfortable by this scene when I was young. And what I get out of it is that, you know, Randy really is, I don't know how much younger he is, but he is so treated like the baby. Yeah. Right. I mean, this is like toddler behavior that he's exhibiting and he is not a toddler. You know, the mom is doing everything she can to get this kid to eat. Yeah. And did you notice Randy is wearing a pink bib? I feel like maybe I've noticed that in years past, but I didn't notice it the other night when I watched it. I mean, bless the pink, who cares? But like, he's wearing a bib like a baby. Yeah. That is kind of weird. 
There's a lot to unpack there with mom. I know Randy grew up with some residual effects of being treated like a baby. <laughs> like, you know, Randy has had What's some What's his Christmas story? That's what I want to know. That's what we needed. They did some sequels. We needed to delve into Randy's story. Just do the whole movie over again, but from his point of view. Oh, that would have been awesome. Amazing. That's a great Amazing. idea. Every time you turn around, that kid is like such a, such a little baby. He's a pain in the so ass. Weird. Like he, he cries like a baby. He whines a lot. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's something I actually wrote down was that all these kids cry all the time. Like everyone <laughs> is crying all the time. And I'm just like, I actually really never noticed that until the other night. It's a lot. And I think that that is all part of just adding to the chaos of the film. It's designed to make you feel uncomfortable and unsettled. Yeah. So this is when dinner is interrupted by that seven foot crate dad's special delivery where the outside of the box says fragile and the dad reads it because he's a dumbass fragile. Oh, it must be Italian. <laughs> Italian. <laughs> it's a very large lamp in the shape of a woman's fishnet stockinged leg, complete with a stiletto heel. The lampshade is gold fringe, like a skirt. And there's even a little bump of a hiney that you don't realize until it's broken. Yes, you're absolutely right. And Mr. Parker is just overjoyed by this. He's like, isn't it glorious? It's indescribably beautiful. And he wants to display it in the middle of the front window where a Christmas tree would go. He wants all the neighbors to notice, which they do. His wife is so horrified. This thing is tacky and ugly and embarrassing. And meanwhile, Ralphie cannot stop caressing the leg. He calls it electric (laughs) sex gleaming in the window. Oh my God, that's right. And it's so crazy because that has become such a staple Christmas decoration. It's just everywhere crazy. Oh my God. It's so ugly and obnoxious. It's hilarious. And for that time period too, I can imagine that that was super scandalous to have something like that. Like I can't, I can't imagine. That's why I feel like in the eighties, the reaction would have been that in the forties, I don't even think a lamp like that could exist. They don't go into detail. Like what is this major award that he won? What contest did he enter? What did he, what did he do to win it? Like what, what, There's what? No I have questions. In the world. I have so many questions. <laughs> Cause it had to have been super expensive to, to even mail it. There's so much going on there. That's like, there's no way. There's no way. I know it's ridiculous. Fragile must be Italian, but like, is this from Italy? Is this from right. overseas? Like, what is it? Is it a famous designer? What we could do another sequel on, on the, the backstory of the leg lamp. <laughs> the next day at school, this is when Ralphie hands in his essay and has his little vision, his daydream <laughs> about Miss Shields reading it. And this is when she gives him the A plus, 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 plus. plus. That is so great. That's so great. Funny. The Parker family goes out to get a Christmas tree. And while they're driving home, the car blows a tire. Ralphie goes to help his dad change the tire and his dad is putting lug nuts in the hubcap and Ralphie drops it. Uh, 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 uh. Dad knocks it out. Oh, of he does. Hand. I kind of didn't catch totally that. Does. 
No, I mean, because that's the reason why Ralphie throws it up in the air is because dad nubs it with his arm. I kind of miss that. That's kind of major. Last night was about the billionth time that I've watched it. So it's, you know, so dad knocks it out of his hands. Mm -hmm. These things go everywhere. This is when Ralphie lets out. We hear the word fudge. But he says the big one, the queen mother of dirty words, the F dash 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 word. His dad is regularly like weaving a tapestry of obscenities. This is how his dad talks, of course. But his dad is so upset when he tells his wife, Ralphie's mom, what he said. She screams as though somebody died. Yeah, but okay. so upset. But time out. This is what I think. I have a different view of this. Tell me. When he sends Ralphie to the car, the camera goes back to dad and he's almost shitting himself with laughter. Like he's trying to keep in the laughter. Okay. I missed that too. <laughs> yeah. No, because what happened was, this is why you have two people on to talk about these. Yes, things. exactly. Cause I would have been like, dad's pissed. He had to, as a parent react that way. Okay. So he knew that that was a bad word. And even when he, when dad gets in the car to tell mom, he still has like a little mm. glint in his eye about how freaking hilarious it is that his kid dropped the F-bomb. But mom's reaction is over the top, bar soap in the mouth, like just the most, did you ever get your mouth washed out with soap? I did. Oh I had a babysitter. God. She had like a, kind of like a daycare center in her home. And that was just a method of punishment. And she was not a bad woman. That's the thing. Like she wasn't super mean to us, but when we were out of line, that was the punishment. Mm. So yes, I want to say it was sort of done the same way as Ralphie's mom. She's not screaming at him. She's not beating the shit out of him. It's just like, you did a bad thing. Now this is the punishment. And it's so interesting to me because later on in the film, we see that mom extends Ralphie, a great deal of grace when Ralphie ends up beating up his bully. She -hmm. doesn't tell the full story to the dad. She doesn't want the dad's crazy reaction. She tries to spare Ralphie from that, Mm -hmm. but Ralphie's father does not offer him the same grace. Mm -hmm. He tells the mom. Wow. I never thought of that. Knowing full well that she would lose her shit because to her that said, oh my God, I'm raising a delinquent child to the point where she forces Ralphie to tell her who told you, you know, this word knowing full well, dad says it a million times. They all hear it. And then he throws his friend under the bus. We hear the friend get beat. But what I do like is that mom um, does put the soap in her mouth afterwards. And she's just like, "Ooh, that's bad. And almost throws up. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty terrible. It's so funny because when Ralphie goes to bed, it's unclear. Does he dream this? No, it's a vision. He's having another fantasy about coming back. He's wearing sunglasses. He's walking with a white cane and his, his parents welcome him in. It's like, Ralphie, Ralphie, what's wrong? Ralphie, you have a cane? Ralphie, what, what was it? What did we do? I love, I love the whole, what did we do? Yeah. Not what happened. And of course the famous line that I still say today. It was so poisoning. (laughs) I can't say that all the time. And he's so satisfied. I think this is when he looks at the camera and kind of smiles. Yeah. 
I love the fourth wall breaking. A lot of that happens in this movie. It's so great because he's so cute. I loved him so adorable. The next day, this is when he finally receives his Ovaltine secret decoder ring that he sent away for. And he anxiously tunes into the, what is it? Well, it's, it's not an Ovaltine decoder. It's the, the orphan Annie decoder. So he listens to radio orphan Annie sponsored by Ovaltine. Yes. For a really important secret message, right? It's such a long scene. Oh my God. We already know. Are they really going to write every single letter out? Like it's so excruciating. And you know, this house has one bathroom and Randy has to poop. And it says, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. It was a crummy commercial. Yeah. It's weird. It's when you start losing that innocence of finding out that Sienna is not real. Spoiler alert. And (laughs) I think childhood is filled with a series of unraveling that and these disappointments. For Ralphie, I feel like this was a pivotal moment for him, even though it was something so stupid. It was really meaningful to him in that moment. And I think that realization to him just sets the stage for his whole life to follow that maybe the thing that I think is so great isn't going to end up being that way. Like, like maybe things aren't going to shake out the way that I expect them to. Lori, this is why I like you. You are such a advanced thinker in a lot of ways. Like, no, 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 no. I know I. I'm putting way more depth on you than you probably I don't deserve it. <laughs> but but a lot of the things I've heard in your podcast, you see things that maybe some of us just don't have time to see because we're too busy like running around and doing crazy things. Like I was a raver, right? So like hi, I was doing drugs. And <laughs> you know, like being promiscuous or doing crazy things. And you're just sitting there going, like, no, I'm not gonna double dog dare. I don't care. <laughs> Um, because I can see that that's not going to be a good idea. And also I feel like you have a lot of this sort of sixth sense about these things that like, I would never have put that together watching this movie. Oh, and I you are love so that generous. You Thank you. Love that is that. super nice. And girling. I, <laughs> I love you. I love you. Lori. Same. I feel the same Trish mutual admiration society right here. So, okay. That night. Whew. This is when mom decides to take that leg lamp situation into her own hands. (laughs) And I love it because, you know, throughout the film, she has these little quips to her husband, but she never really takes a firm stand on anything. He's just very overpowering presence. And she's just sort of meek and mild and frazzled. Like she'll say little things and then he'll dismiss her. She's often dismissed. But with this, she really doesn't like this fucking ugly lamp. And this is when she, finger quote, accidentally breaks it. Mm -hmm. And dad is devastated. He (laughs) blames her. You broke it on purpose. She's like, oh my God, no, I didn't. I was watering my plants. I'm so sorry. (laughs) He tried to fix it with tape, which is just so in line because like him working on the furnace, it's amazing. He hasn't burned the house down him plugging that lamp in and it's sparking everywhere. Like he is a hazard of a person (laughs) and he is in charge of the safety and security of this family. Right. 
I mean, the fact that he tried to fix it with tape is just so stupid. He thought he had it fixed at one point. It just crumbles. She finds this whole thing so funny. She's trying not to laugh. I love her behind him laughing. It's and amazing. Sitting there watching the whole thing. Because she, she doesn't have to be. But I feel like she's doing that just to, just because he's such an ass. I mean, he's so distraught by this, Trish, that he decides he has to give this lamp a proper burial in the backyard at night no in the dead of winter so weird the next day at school the essays are returned ralphie his delight turns to sheer horror when he sees that c plus grade at the top of his paper with the words you'll shoot your eye out scrolled across the page that's all we got to say about that guys he is devastated he is not having a good day he's walking home And he gets hit in the eye with a snowball by Scut. And Ralphie just like, he sees red. He snaps. Jesus, his shit. Yes, little Ralphie Parker. He tackles him to the ground. He is on top of him. He is just repeatedly punching him in the face. A crowd of kids gather around. And the things that are coming out of his mouth. Bad words. You can't understand what he's saying. That's what I love about this. It's just sort of like like that. That just shows like there's just so many bad words that kids can't really comprehend. Is that it just sounds like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The glasses were on the snow. They were they were all yeah. Okay. Randy, Randy picks them up. He's not such a baby. Look, he was able to pick up right. his brother's glasses. He was yep. able to run home and go get his mother. We don't give Randy enough credit justice for Randy because he is not a, a little Christmas baby. story. Randy's view. Yes, That's what we thank need. You. <laughs> thank you. Bob Clark, get on that. Yeah. So this is when uh, his mother comes and literally pulls Ralphie off of Scott and mm. escorts him home. He's crying. He's not a kid that beats up kids. I mean, Trish, you understand that. Yeah. He's so scared of his dad. Mm-hmm. And at dinner, mom just casually mentions it. She offers him all the grace in the world. She downplays the situation and Ralphie is relieved. So thank God for that. Mm -hmm. So this is when Ralphie realizes if I am ever to get this BB gun, I need to ask Santa. So on Christmas Eve, the Parkers go to the department store. They drop Ralphie and Randy off like, oh, here's Santa. You guys go see Santa. We'll meet up with you. We have some last minute shopping to do, whatever. And the way they have Santa stationed in this department store, let's talk about this. So we talked about how the camera is designed to be from Ralphie's perspective. When we see Santa, he's like atop this like snowy mountain of sorts. And it looks as though Santa is nearly at the ceiling. So these kids have to go up these stairs to greet Santa. And then once they're done with Santa, they go down a slide. Dude, how fucked up. It's that whole it's thing. It's so stressful. Santa is, <laughs> he's not a good guy. He doesn't want to be there. His the elves are scary. Ugh. They kind of show them through like a fishbowl lens. So they right. look kind of like weird. And contorted. Yeah. This is interesting. So Ralphie and Randy are in line behind that weird kid with goggles. Yeah. The kid that's like, I like Santa. I like the Wizard of Oz. And he just holds that stare and it's super uncomfortable. Yeah. That kid was just a local extra who showed up in these goggles. And Clark, the director, was like, 
this kid is weird. (laughs) He's weird. We want to use him just the way he is. That was him. That was the kid. And Ralphie, good for him. He straight up tells him like, leave me alone. Like I'm thinking. (laughs) Don't understand what's at stake. Yes. Like I'm working on my elevator pitch. (laughs) It's finally Ralphie's turn. He is so like scared shitless once he's there. He is intimidated by Santa and the elves are in his face, manhandling him. He, he blanks out. They're like, what do you want for Christmas? He like, can't speak. It's all awkward. And then they shove him down the slide and he realizes right as he's going down the slide. Oh my God. No, I didn't ask for the BB gun. He stops himself on the slide, climbs back up (laughs) and he tells Santa, this is what I want. And Santa tells him, you'll shoot your eye out kid. And Santa's boot goes directly to his face and pushes him down the slide. I mean, damn denied defeated i mean wow yeah (laughs) this is a fun bit of trivia ralphie says he wants the red rider bb gun 28 times throughout this film that's basically once every three minutes and 20 seconds whoa it's crazy right Oh my gosh, that is crazy. (laughs) So the next morning, it's Christmas morning. Ralphie and Randy rush downstairs. This is when Ralphie has to unwrap his gift from Aunt Clara. I guess she handmade the pink bunny suit. Are they jammies? Unclear. Uh, Mom thinks this is the most precious thing she's ever seen. She forces him to try it on. He's absolutely humiliated. I mean, I've never seen anything like that for a nine-year-old boy. Ralphie says something like, Aunt Clara seems to think like I'm a little kid and I'm a girl. Yeah. I don't even think a little kid that is a girl would like this gift. First of all, it's Christmas. Why are you sending me a pink bunny suit? And then Randy is younger than Ralphie. What did Randy get from Aunt Clara? Nothing super weird. We don't see anything and we just see him laughing at him. I mean, yeah. Who the hell is aunt Clara? She's out of touch, man. I can't believe mom thought this was adorable and forced him to try it on. Right. That is some abuse right there. If you ask me, that is (laughs) humiliating. And and it's the one time we see dad being cool and being like, do you want to wear that? Do you feel stupid? Yeah. Take it it off. Like you don't have to wear that. Like the, it's, it's like the one redeeming quality of dad is that he's like, listen, I'm not going to let my son just hang out in this bunny suit. Right. Like for a man that has problems recognizing ridiculousness, at least he, he realized it in this moment because up to this point, oh my he hasn't God, been able to so see true. it. No, he has no, blind to ridiculousness. That's a good point. Yes. <laughs> okay. All the presents are unwrapped. Dad asks Ralphie if he received everything he wanted. And Ralphie said, almost. And just then he points out a package hiding behind the desk and tells him to open it. Yeah. Mom didn't know anything about it. Surprise. When she sees dad went ahead and got this gun for him. Oh, I just get cut. <laughs> you know what? The movie came out a long time ago. If you guys don't know that Ralphie got his baby gun, you shouldn't be listening to this episode. And you had like, you had a long time to figure that out. So he's so excited. He asks if he can go out and use it. They tell him, yeah, go ahead. His mom's like, be careful. And you know, she's tending to Christmas dinner. She's busy. 
Oh, the turkey. The yeah. turkey. The turkey yeah. that dad can't seem to stay away from. He's the man is crazy for turkey. So Ralphie sets up his target, which is ridiculous because his target is like metal on a tree. Yeah. So he shoots the gun. The BB clearly ricochets right off of his metal target straight into his glasses or it knocks the glasses off of his face. And Ralphie, for a moment, he's on the ground like he's touching his eyes. He thought he shot his eye out. He he did he not says, know. Oh, my God. I shot my eye oh, out. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and then he realized, oh, my God, I have both eyes because he gets up and he's he's looking for his glasses and crunch. He steps on his glasses. And now he's like, I'm going to get in so much trouble for breaking these glasses. And and they're going to think that I shot my eye out. They're going to take this gun away from me. And he concocts this lie to tell his parents an icicle fell from the garage and it cut me. I mean, it's super smart, right? So brilliant. So brilliant. So smart. And so, yeah, he starts crying and pretending that he's hurt. And mom rushes out. Oh, my God, those things kill people. Yes. Oh, my God, Ralphie, you know. <laughs> instantly believes him. There's no doubt at all. No. I can't believe that. I can't believe that kid could come up with that lie. Like, my mom would never believe that. I mean, Ralphie's clearly a sociopath, right? Like, he, he <laughs> let his friend... They stuck to a flagpole. Oh, God. And beat up by lying about the F word. Oh, yeah. He is he's clearly a little liar. Like, he's Ralphie's a narcissist. <laughs> Meanwhile, the, the hound dogs, those freaking neighbor hound dogs, bust in the house. They get the turkey. Oh, my God. And they're fighting each other. It is really intense scene. It's horrible. And dad is just like, oh my God, my turkey Christmas dinner is ruined. And this is when he tells the family, you guys get dressed. We're going to dinner. He does it in like such a normal way that you don't expect. You would expect he freaked out more about the lamp being broken than this turkey. This is true. And he really cared about the turkey too. (laughs) There's a lot to this dad. Yeah. A lot more layers than we think. Yes. What's a dad's backstory? See, what were his disappointments? I mean, there's so many stories. We could have Schwartz. We could have dad. That would be Mom, awesome. Randy. So they end up at a Chinese restaurant. It's presumably the only place that's open on Christmas Day in their small town. This is what I'm gathering. Well, and, and here's the thing is that Chinese and Asian restaurants in general are usually what is known for people who aren't Christian to be able to get Go food. Okay. So I've definitely had um, Asian food on Christmas day. Cause like I said, it hasn't, I haven't always celebrated. I know a lot of my Jewish friends have, uh, that's like a, a thing for them to do is go to Chinese for Christmas. So that's interesting. Yeah. So they're there. And I, I get the impression this is a, probably their first time, even in a Chinese restaurant ever. That's true because they do act so strange. About everything. And and this is where. (sighs) This is where the movie turns. It does. It's problematic, which is really unfortunate because this is near the very end of the film. Yep. So now the servers at the Chinese restaurant try to sing deck the halls and they're unable to properly pronounce and, and it's a big fat joke. And then they bring out the food and it's a duck. I've never been to a Chinese restaurant where there was a full on head on the duck that served. I'm not sure how common that is. 
I've been to plenty of parties and or restaurants where there's a full pig with the head and oh like they treat it as though it is the most ridiculous thing. It's so culturally insensitive. It ruins so much of the movie that you're just like, everything was perfect until that moment. Like I said, they did cowboys and robbers. Yes. You know, like there, there's like certain things where like the mom isn't just some dowdy housewife. Like she's pretty smart and, and manipulative in a, in a funny way. And dad isn't really this like abusive, crazy dad, you know, and then they had to just yeah. Ah, it just, and they're just gross. laughing and yeah, totally distasteful. It was distasteful. But then again, y'all should see Porky's because <laughs> we're taking it back to Porky's. Just saying. So this was really interesting though. In the very next scene, the Parkers are back home. The boys are, you know, sent to bed. And this is when we see mom and dad sit together on the couch. In a loving way. For the first time, they sit near each other. He puts his arm around her and they like cheers. They they clink their glasses. Mm-hmm. Watching the snow and the Christmas tree lights together. It's, yeah, it's like this tender moment when we haven't seen this at all. Is the audience left to believe this is the Christmas magic aspect of this? That the holidays at the end of the day, after all the craziness, When it's finally almost over, you can take a moment and actually enjoy it now that the kids are asleep. I couldn't decide if I was happy that it was in there because then it's like, okay, there's some love in this partnership or does it feel misplaced? I'm going to ask you then as a parent, how are you and your husband at the end of Christmas night? You know, I'll tell you, and I've said it on the pod before. I don't really love Christmas and I feel like it's just gotten so far away from what it's supposed to be. So I really struggle with trying to create holiday joy and magic for my children when I don't really feel it. And I feel my magic in simpler terms. Mm -hmm. My favorite part of Christmas is Christmas morning when my husband and I get up really early and we have our coffee by the tree before it all begins, because it's like the work part of it is done. So when the work part of it is done, I can stop and I can appreciate the lights and the trouble and and the hassle and the, all of this. And it sounds so negative. And I feel really bad saying that because no, no, no love Christmas. They love this shit. It's an ordeal. It's stressful. It's so much money, but you know what you're saying though, is probably them just in reverse. I think that that's true too. It would have been nice to see at least a peppering of some love or something between them throughout the film. But it's kids' perspective. This is true. Our kids, and, and I think he adds that in when the kids aren't around to show that like, this is what it's really like. Every other time we see them interacting, the kids are around. That's right. So we see the kids in bed and Ralphie is, you know, snuggled up in bed with his BB gun. I hope that thing is not loaded. It totally was. You know, it was, it was right? <laughs> like no one was checking that. And this is when we get the voiceover that recalls that this was the best Christmas. And 
the actor who played Ralphie, Peter Billingsley, he got to take home three items from this film that he still has. He has a Red Rider BB gun. He has the pink bunny suit. What? And he has Ralphie's broken glasses, which I say he got to take home. Those were actually his glasses, but they broke on set. But he has them. Oh, how cute. He has them. Interestingly, I like to talk about Roger Ebert sometimes in his review of films because I usually don't agree. This one, I kind of do. He said in his review, my guess is that either nobody will go see it or millions of people will go see it. Now, millions of people, I don't think went and saw it in the theater, but when it first appeared on HBO in 1985, this kind of coincided with the release of this film on home video. So it started gaining in popularity as people would be able to purchase the film, view it Mm -hmm. around the holidays. It was becoming sort of like a holiday classic around that time. In 1997, TNT slash TBS Yes. Began running their 24-hour marathons. Yes. And I was so there for it, Lori. So my roommate, one of my roommates in college, she died of COVID last year. Oh, I'm so sorry. She and I used to make tamales and watch the nonstop Christmas story on TBS. So I was so hoping you would mention that because that is like a shout out to my girl clove, because that was like a big thing that we would do, um, starting in 1997. So, so are you going to have tamales in memory of your friend? You know, um, I always have tamales in my fridge. Good call. Good call. Yeah. It's always a good time for tamales. Yeah. Yeah. So did you know you can actually visit the Christmas story house and museum? It is located in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, wow. So it was restored to its original film glory. Someone purchased it, restored it, made it into a place where you can actually stay overnight. There's a museum there full of, you know, a bunch of memorabilia. And the price ranges from about 500 bucks a night to $2,000 a night if you want to okay. stay on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah. Don't have that kind of disposable cash. <laughs> the house is accessible. If you want to see it and go through the museum, it's like $15 for general admission to check it out. If you happen to be in Cleveland, Ohio, seems kind of fun. I'd be into it. It seems like a fun place to go. It definitely wouldn't be a destination vacation right. at all. Okay. So there were some sequels to this. We talked about all the possible sequel scenarios. There was a 1988 made for TV movie called Ollie Hop Noodles Haven of Bliss. And in it, Jerry O'Connell plays a 14-year-old Ralphie. What? Yeah. In 1994, a film came out called My Summer Story, aka It Runs in the Family. And this is when Kieran Culkin plays Ralphie. Kieran Culkin of Succession and the Father of the Bride films and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. And then in 2012, there was a direct-to-video, A Christmas Story 2, that picks up five years after the original film left off. And this is all about Ralphie trying to get his parents to get him a car. Oh, weak. We have better ideas. We have so many better ideas. I know. So many better ideas. In 2012, A Christmas Story, the musical, opened on Broadway. And in 2013, it was nominated for three Tonys. 
Oh my gosh. So you need to put that on Disney plus. Cause so I would watch fun, that. right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Peter Billingsley said, I'm looking forward in my life. I'm pursuing new things. I don't want to run from it. He said, I never understood that, especially something that brings a lot of people, a lot of joy. And by the way, it's not going anywhere. So you better get comfortable with it. You can't remove it from the culture, but he's not interested in like leaning in. In fact, he's a director and producer today. He has been involved with the Iron Man films or Christmases, the breakup. And he actually directed couples retreat that film from a few years back. So he's behind the camera. He's successful. He works with John Favreau a lot. Wow. Gen X and, and they're both Gen Xers. There you so go. that's pretty rad. And um, the Marvel universe is made up of uh, lots of Gen Xers. So that's Fun. super rad, so super funny. rad to know that he's doing that. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, it's what made him um, kind of famous and probably put some money in his bank. And then um, he didn't really do a lot after that and didn't really do a lot of acting in his, in his life post a Christmas you know, story. He has right? a cameo in Elf. He's an elf. And that's oh, a John wow. Favreau film. He has like a beard, I think, in it. Like you wouldn't, he's wearing glasses. You wouldn't necessarily know it was him. I'm going to have to keep an eye out next yeah. year. I mean, because it's getting on elf season here. Yes. <laughs> I love that. So Trish, I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about you and I want to talk about your podcast. You started your podcast, Gen X Voice, in August 2020. Yes, Lori. <laughs> That's correct. Okay. So the inspiration behind this podcast, you wanted to bring people together because of the huge division that you noticed between generations and the worldview that people had. It was like there was no sort of common ground to be seen between the generations. And so can you tell me a little bit about what that was like for you taking that first step? And did you have any podcasting experience when you started? So, I mean, it, it kind of was always something I wanted to do um, because I, as a teacher, you know, I had millennials that would have these conversations and I'd be like, yeah, we're affected by that too. My generation's affected by student debt. My generation thinks about the environment, but when we were all in at home because of COVID last year and things were so political, I mean, you had the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor things happening and the Black Lives Matter protests and all I could see on social media were the young people being um, social activists and the older people being very Trump supportive. And there really didn't seem to be any middle ground. And there really didn't seem to be any conversation between the two of them. It was like loving Trump meant hating black people and loving Black Lives Matter meant being un-American. I mean, it was just insane and it was unraveling so quickly. I don't know if you remember, but it's oh, I like remember it was ruining family relationships. It was rocking out of relationships. Yeah. And French and, and being like, if your family member voted Trump and put us where we are today, then they need to be excommunicated from your family. And I was like, I love I love my aunt and uncle. You know, my childhood has been tumultuous to have them in my life has been to have people who believe in me and don't see a drug abused mom in my, you know, in my aura important. Yeah. That relationship is so valuable, but guess what? They voted Trump Mm -hmm. and 
but I wasn't going to cut them out. And so I thought what I could do instead was have conversations. So I started the podcast to see if people talking and listening to each other could maybe shift some ideas. And what's so neat, Lori, is that I've actually had boomer friends of mine and even my aunt say things like, wow, that episode where your friends are parents of a transgender um, child totally shifted my perception of being transgender and what that's all about. And I mean, even if one person hears and thinks differently because of an episode or because of a guest I've had, then I have done everything I wanted to. And I know it's not a lot and I know it's not everything that you could do in the world, but it's something I feel like I'm seeing actual change from what I'm doing. Whereas like teaching at an at-risk school, like you don't really see that what happens after. What's so amazing about your podcast too, is it is a safe space for people of other generations other worldviews to come together to tell their story and people trust in you, Trish. So they tune in. And these are people that may never, ever have an opportunity to hear someone with this sort of life experience or that sort of thinking. They wouldn't take an hour out of their day to listen to anyone talk. They might not even know anybody, but yet they have preconceived notions of the kind of people who are like this or the kind of people who think this way. Where knowing you, trusting you, tuning into you, they have an opportunity to actually hear about someone's struggle, their life experience, about their mission, about their the work that they're doing in the world. And that makes a big, big difference. It's a huge contribution. I do it against the backdrop of pop culture because I happen to find that pop culture is sort of a great equalizer. It's a place where oh, people feel such a relatable to revisit. Yeah. yeah. But these conversations are so valuable. And so I get the sense too, and this is what I love so much about your podcast is you, I can tell are a lifelong student. You are learning from your guests as much as your listeners are learning from you. I can tell you have a real thirst for this. Yeah, You want to understand, you want to bridge that generational gap. Yeah. I love that you're saying that because it's so true because I, you know, I look at every interview as like, okay, what do I want to learn from this person? And Uh the last thing I ask every guest is like, you know, what's your life advice, right? And I'm always so inspired because people have such beautiful things to say. I think middle-aged people are written off. Um, We've been ignored between the two very vocal generations, millennials and boomers. I mean, we are the forgotten generation. We a hundred percent are so forgotten, not added in conversations about the student loan debt and things like that. Like they're, they're not talking about that. And now that we, our generation is going into perimenopause and menopause becoming middle age on social media, like boomers weren't turning middle age on social media. They were already either going through it or transitioning out of it. We've literally been on it for the last 20 years. Right. So this is an opportunity for us to really start having our voice 
be heard. And, and it's people like you and other Gen X podcasts out there that like, it's so great to, because we've been in a chrysalis for so long, mm-hmm. like cocooning. And now we're all like, okay, we did all the things we wanted to do. Now let's talk about it. And let's let people know that like, just because you're older doesn't mean you're dumb. And just because you're young doesn't mean that you're uh, in a fairy tale world. So I don't know. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're dumb. And it also doesn't mean you're done. And I think that Mm -hmm. is really the ticket because, because we talked about how Gen X is often the forgotten generation. Like you said, Gen X was written off as slackers. So what's a slacker? Before we even graduated high school. Right. Right. It's someone who doesn't do anything. It's someone who's not motivated. It's someone who doesn't have a larger goal or purpose. You are out to prove Gen X is not a bunch of slackers. We're not a bunch of Karens. We're people who have progressive thinking. We're not done. We're here. This is our opportunity to speak out. And that's what Gen X voice is. We've just been really busy. We've We've been been busy busy raising families, raving, taking drugs, (laughs) legalizing drugs, fighting, creating Black Lives Matter, which was created by Gen X. We have been doing stuff all along. We knew no one was watching us, so we didn't say anything. But but now we're like, this is our time now. Mm-hmm. This is This is it. You guys had your time. We're taking over now. It's such an inspiration, honestly. Like I've never been more proud to be middle-aged. Right? So what's next for you? What's coming up? I don't know. You know, life is, is moving along as it does. And there is a huge part of me that wants to transition to another career because I'm not challenged at work. Like I used to be, and I don't feel like I'm using the passion and the resources that I have inside of me. I, I want to tap back into that. You know, I want, I want a job that makes the world a better place, but but I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. I really do feel like um, this is going to be a transition year. So we'll we'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. Oh, that's exciting. I might be publishing a book. <gasps> you heard it here first, guys. You said it. it. Now the universe is listening. <laughs> you dared to speak it into existence. <laughs> listening. Oh my gosh, Trish. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It was such a pleasure to have you on the pod. It has been a long time coming. I'm so happy that you asked me, Lorraine. Um, And I want to tell you, I would love to have you come back on the pod. Oh, I'd love to do it. Of course. I would love to unpack becoming a middle-aged woman in today's world with you, if you would be interested. Yes. Okay. You guys, that's forthcoming. But in the meantime, you need to go and you need to check out Gen X Voice. I will put links to all of Trisha's stuff in the show notes. So be sure to check Trish out. You're going to get so much out of the really inspired conversations that she has. Thank you, Lori. I really appreciate hearing that. That means a lot. Oh, thank you so much again. And you guys, of course, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And merry, merry, merry holidays. And please, please, please remember to rate and subscribe. And you can find us on the web at the Untitled Gen X Podcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at the Untitled Gen X Podcast. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye. <laughs>